Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. It's time for Let It Roll, the podcast about how and why rock and roll happened with host Nate Wilcox. This is the third season of the Let It Roll podcast, and we'll continue to learn about the people who made popular American music in the 20th century and the social and business context they emerged from. Be sure and subscribe to the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Podomatic, and check out our website at letitrollpodcast.com. Guests this season include Paul Trinka, Joe Nick Potosky, Elijah Wald, Robert Gordon, Adam Caress, and Peter Doggett. We'll be talking about the birth of the recording industry in the 1890s, all the way to the business of alternative music in the 1990s, and everything in between. This week, author Paul Trinka returns to discuss his first book, Portrait of the Blues, a classic that's unfortunately out of print, but widely available online for a slight premium. In this episode, Nate chats with Paul about the time he spent connecting with legendary bluesmen like John Lee Hooker, Buddy Guy, Hubert Sumlin, and the stories they told about their lives and adventures playing the blues from Mississippi to Chicago and all over the world. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. Welcome to the Let It Roll podcast. This is your host, Nate Wilcox, joined once again by our guest, Paul Trinka, former editor of Mojo Magazine and author of many books. Today we're going to be talking about his book, Portrait of the Blues. Paul, welcome back to the show. Oh, thanks, Nate. It's great to be here. Cool. And so it's not often you get a writer who's willing to talk about a book that, that's some 20 years old and semi out of print. I had a fairly hard time tracking it down. But uh, I think for the purposes of the show, it's important to talk about this stuff. And thanks for, for indulging me on this. Portrait of the Blues, this was a book you wrote based on interviews you had collected with a number of bluesmen, uh, John Lee Hooker, Earl Burnside, Hubert Sumlin. Um, it's a list of, of greats who've now passed, and you, you worked in partnership with the photographer Val Wilmer. Tell us about the book. Like, how did, how did this come together? What was the genesis of it? How long had you been compiling these interviews? Nearly all the interviews were done specifically for the book, actually. Um, I guess the idea started when I interviewed Buddy Guy, you know, when I just started in journalism, really, maybe about 1986 or 1987. And at the time, you know, you had all these kind of post-punk bands. You were interviewing people like Spandau Ballet, and they were uh, not particularly Spandau Ballet or Paul Weller, you know, and they were not, they were fairly sort of boring interviewees, or at least... They weren't exciting because their life experiences were perhaps very different to mine. And then Buddy Guy's experience of growing up in the 30s and, and making a diddly bow, you know, a little assemblage of bits of wood and wire nailed up against the side of a shed. You know, that took, you know, that took me somewhere completely different. So 
I, I loved that story. And then um, when I was working for another magazine later on, I just pitched it to uh, a chap from Octopus Books, and he said yes straight away. And um, I can't quite remember. I think I think I was speaking to them about it already before um, I got Val Wilmer on board. But you know, Val was very important to me because. She just had the photos already. So to compile an oral history kind of inspired by her photos was just a kind of really simple concept. But it's one that incredibly hadn't been done and, and hasn't been done since. You know, those guys really constructing a narrative, but all in their own words, you know, with the, with the little digressions we get from real people. Yeah, I'm surprised because this is a this is a format that I think could be expanded to any number of topics, and and there's so many catalogs of photos and interviews. I'm surprised people haven't. It's got me thinking. Maybe some other possibilities uh, could be done. But what was it like working with Val? Her photos are mostly from the '60s and early '70s. Your interviews are from the '90s, but it's a pretty seamless fit. Yeah, I mean, essentially, I followed in her footsteps, literally and metaphorically. So you know, we sat down, we chatted about. You know, who she had and we got a few more photos in from uh, from other photographers she knew you know, to fill any any gaps but in a way that the kind of oral history you know was um it went from start to finish and it but it would follow on its own little you know highways and byways the same thing happened with the photos you know so that it's just kind of very personal and um so we didn't really worry too much about if there was any any disconnect. I, I mean, I don't think there was a disconnect because all the important people, I sat down and, and stayed with Hubert Sumlin for a couple of days. And then it just seemed that um, Val had done much the same. And then, you know, occasionally if I'd stayed with Gatemouth Brown for a few days and got on really well with him, she'd spoken to somebody else in the area and gone fishing with them. So it was all kind of the same vibe. And it, it you know, it just was very, it fell into place very easily. Cool. And, and the book was written in the in the 90s and, and you sort of focus on a theme of blues as an influence on rock. And also towards the end of the book, you talk about blues was making a comeback at that point, which has continued at this point in 2018. Do you feel like blues is still most interesting to most fans as a precursor to rock? Or do you think that it's sort of standing on its own now as rock is kind of fading into history? Well, I don't see its importance as coming from being a big influence on the British bands of the 60s. I mean, for me, in many cases, people like Otis Rush, who sadly just died, he's better than, you know, than many of his imitators. So I, I and I actually get flat within the blues scene, not that it bothered me for calling it popular music, but it was popular music. It was made as popular music. So I just see it as um, very exciting rock music pop music whatever you want to call it in its own right and i realize you know it's for some people it's more of a niche genre but i think it's something that always repays you going back to it so now i don't think it's importance is kind of the fact that white guys made it into something different that is part of the story you know, and that's interesting too how it got communicated to to the brits so i did have a chapter where we had people like keith richards etc but you know i I think this music will still matter, you know, 50 or 100 years from now, the best stuff. And, you know, and the very best stuff, you know, for me, hasn't really dated. You know, it's not my music. I didn't grow up listening to it. I grew up listening to punk music. But uh, for me, it's it's much the same thing. I mean, people still talk about punk music now. And actually, I think a lot of that blues music is kind of raw 
and more worthy of investigation than you know the sex pistols might be uh, yeah it's uh i think we could go back and forth for a long time on on the relative merits of of the various music but it's definitely the blues has a life of its own and and i've got this jealousy since i didn't start doing you know music criticism at all until just recently although we're about the same age but you got to speak to so many of these people who were alive in the 90s and maybe in the 90s it felt like you were like oh man i wish i could have caught muddy waters before he passed or Holland wolf before he passed but how happy are you that you got to speak with people like Hubert Sumlin? Well, of course I am. It, it was really phenomenal. I think, you know, it was one of the, the kind of great experiences of my life. And I think about it more now. And yes, I think that that was exactly the case. There was regret I hadn't got to to Muddy. But at the same time, when I got to people like Hubert and I did, you know, long detailed interviews with him and people like, um, you know, Jimmy Rogers I didn't feel that it was kind of leftovers because there weren't really many good interviews with with Wolf or with Muddy at all. So to actually have an oral history of Jimmy Rogers saying how Muddy first went electric and how they played on Maxwell Street, in a sense, that hadn't been done before because there hadn't really been done any Q&As with open questions. I've got to say I was influenced by Studs Turkles, who's the, obviously the great oral historian of our time. And I think I was just discussing this with a friend and he said, check this guy out. And, the, you know, the way he interviewed people, get their personality across and and to kind of include the digressions as being, you know, examples of a greater whole. You know, that that I think was something that hadn't been enough. People like Studs had definitely done it before and he'd done it with musicians, too. And there's a good book on jazz called Hear Me Talking to You that has much the same approach. But I, I just wanted all of it there with its kind of richness and contradictions. So, yeah, at the time I thought, oh, if only so-and-so were there. But now when I look at it and I think of driving up to Minneapolis and seeing Hubert in this little kind of wood house with a little picket fence right in the ghetto, you know, in a rough area, really, but still very sweet and childlike, you know, it was amazing. And, you know, there was a lot of driving. There was a lot of tracking people down and going back and forth because, you know, you there weren't really cell phones then. You just had to turn up at people's house. And, of course, so now it seems ridiculously evocative, you know, like a, a product really of a of a bygone era. You know, now if you had a people had cell phones and you're traveling around, it'd be and, you know, to get copy back to people would be uh, pretty easy wouldn't it but yes sadly that part of my life is already ancient history now <laughs> <laughs> well i'm glad you captured this for the record because I, th I think this is important record and and one thing i really appreciated about the book is it sort of functions as sort of a capsule history of the blues even though it's relatively short and and has the photos i, I thought you did a really good job of of telling the stories for, of the blues from the beginning to the point in time where you ended the book and and one thing I want to touch on at the beginning of it, when you talk about the roots of blues, you mentioned the story that W.C. Handy told, and also Ma Rainey had a very, very similar story. Both of these were professional African-American musicians who claimed to have encountered somebody, both around 1902-1903, had claimed to have encountered sort of a, a primitive Negro playing this weird music and singing these weird flatted notes how much do you believe that myth I mean, or legend? And and some people have speculated that Charlie Patton himself might have been the man that W.C. Handy saw. Do you, do you believe that? Is that possible? Well, 
I believe in the general thesis that WC Handy didn't really know that much about it because, you know, obviously the, the country then was incredibly regional. He was schooled and he came from the city and they played a different form of music in the city. And, you know, one thing that I'm always conscious of now is this kind of mysterious time after Reconstruction ended, you know, with after the Civil War, when you know, there were all these black universities, this music was spread around, you know, when, and the music, that I guess, became spirituals, you know, was spread around quite quickly. And then suddenly, you know, when the Democrats, the Southern Democrats, the Dixie Democrats retook control, then all black culture disappeared again. And you had sharecropping that was, wasn't really that much different to slavery. So it did go kind of underground and out of people's ken. So I think, in essence, you know, it... W.C. Handy did encounter somebody, whether it was, you know, as romantic a story as he penned, I really don't know. But, um, you know, without him, what what would have happened? Would we have necessarily heard about that music till much later? You know, so it's it's kind of one of the one of great what ifs. But for me, it's a bit like when they write about Roman history. You know, they've got Tacitus's story and they've got a couple of other guys stories. And really, that's all they got. So they, at the end, they've just got to say, well, you know, could well have happened like that. We haven't got anything any better, so let's go with that one with a health warning attached. So that's pretty much how I treat it. Yeah, and, and what's your personal take? There's a lot of debate as to whether or not blues is really a very primordial form with direct roots to Africa or if it was sort of a new form that was innovated uh, possibly in the 1890s, possibly even by Charlie Patton. I mean, do you view this as like a novel pop form from the early 20th century that incorporated some of these elements that, I mean, clearly some of these things do go to, back to Africa, like the, the flatted sevenths and flatted fifths and these things that are sort of outside the Western musical scale, but the way it was incorporated into the blues form, you know, with the repeating lines and the 12 bar structure, how do you view this? Well, I, I think you actually summarized it pretty well. Yes. That tonality comes from, you know, probably North Africa, um, or different places. And I'll tell you another thing, if you go back to North Africa and you find the people, uh, you know, who play Berber music, and then you look back, you find a lot of that Berber music, they played for Crusaders at some time, and they were probably changing their songs up for a particular audience anyway, right? So if we were to try and go back to the roots of this pure music from a purer time, you'd find it was probably always, there was always this transaction between the music itself and the commercial world. And, I, and, and my guess is that somebody like Charlie Patton, and he was certainly one of the first people to play slide, he, was, he had to be influenced by Hawaiian uh, musicians. You know, they were playing slide. Um, it was very popular around that time as well. And they were playing, you know, probably more like um, a pedal steel kind of slide. And, you know, the thing about those guys is they didn't necessarily get money by just playing the old stuff from, you know, 50 years ago. They got paid for playing the new stuff as well. They, and they would play whatever brought them the most tips. So, uh, you know, I think I, I differ from a lot of um, blues diehards who see the music as something, as kind of the or rock and roll as something pure, because I see it as something that was always exchanging with other forms of music right from the beginning. And yes, Scottish folk music, there's got to be an exchange process going on there because we know there was with, you know, with spirituals as well. So, yeah, I'd say that the kind of the chordal sequence, the way they switch from the the root note to the dominant near the end, you know, that's going to, I'd be certain 
really that it that it's coming from from other folk musics and it's not pure you know it's been changing and you do touch on a little bit uh uh you talk to jr kimbrough who's uh you know a northern mississippi blues man who had a big revival in the 90s and and uh also otha turner and they they played to me what i view as sort of a more primordial form of blues especially the fife and drum music that turner played um, how do you view that interacting and, 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 and what was it like seeing Kimbrough and, and his contemporary R.L. R. Burnside, you know, emerge into the scene in a big way in the 90s? Well, it was very exciting. I, mean, I guess the whole John Spencer thing came just a little bit after that. And then and then Iggy, you know, I remember he told everybody he went down to the shack, you know, in near off in Chulahoma, near Oxford, Mississippi. And of course he hadn't. <laughs> None of them had, you know. <laughs> Same with Bono, blessed, you know, he'd go on about it. And then, yeah, you look and he didn't ever go down to the shack. It was wild. You know, it was like going back to something from a century because it was just so dark in the hills country there. The, you know, the the Milky Way is kind of crowded overhead. And, and I turned up one night and nobody was there. And there's just a crowd suddenly turns up from the middle of nowhere. And I'm chatting to people and they don't know where Junior is and he's not turning up. You know, so we have to come back next week. It was wild, you know, really wild. And um, uh, I can't, it, it was supremely moving to be there. And certainly R.L. Burnside was terrific. But seeing um, Junior Kimber play, it was like seeing Joy Division play, really. It was better than seeing Frank Sinatra play. When I saw Joy Division in 1978, maybe 79, you know, they just, this music was kind of new. And you were like, whoa, where did this come from? And Junior Kimbrough was the same thing. You know, it obviously was kind of more traditional, but he was very electric. It was very psychedelic. You know, he's got this kind of weird Gibson L6S guitar, I think it was, you know, that's like... Um, uh, like Carlos Santana used to play at one time. So his guitar sounds really, very modern, you know, and then they're just playing these long loping riffs without really any, just kind of implied chord changes, no real chord changes. And I guess that all comes from Mississippi Fred McDowell. And he'd refashioned it his own way. And he'd probably refashioned it to look a bit more battered and old, you know, there has to be a bit of that. You know, those guys, they're all adopting their old persona as well you know which might or might not play well with different people but yeah junior kimbra sitting on a sofa like with no cushions you sank right back into it and in this in this kind of incredibly isolated area in mississippi and, and when i was there you know it was there was still a lot of kind of apartheid between even in Ox, even in um, Holly Springs, you know, the nearest town, there was a black part and there was a white part and nobody went from one to the other. So that was weird, you know, for a Brit, like going back to kind of the Civil War era. So the whole thing was kind of um, kaleidoscopic, surreal and, 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 you know, timeless, really. So I feel very lucky to have done it over successive nights. It was great. Absolutely wonderful. Well, one of my favorite anecdotes in this book is when you talk about uh, meeting Robert Jr. Lockwood, who's, I believe, the stepson of Robert Johnson, you know, a famous blues man who was fairly elderly. And you talked about how you'd written and corresponded and planned a meeting. And then you get there and he and his wife are acting like they've never heard of you and, and you don't exist. And there's this great sentence you say, reflecting on the implication 
that I'm both a figment of my own imagination and an asshole. I decide now might be a good time to leave. What was that like? Well, you know, it's kind of like the ultimate nightmare, really. You know, what do we fear as humans? We sort of fear rejection. And, you know, when you're trying to get people to speak to you, you're sort of, you're being their friend. And are you being hypocritical? You know, there's always that, are you exploiting them? You know, you're trying to use your charm to get something out of people. And then when somebody's like, no, I didn't talk to you. I'm not going to talk to you. And that's happened to me a lot of times. You know, it's always a bit of a, whoa, whatever. But I think even then, I just thought, yeah, okay, I'll try you again. And then I, I think, I can't remember whether I just, when I contacted them again the next time, I just, I think I apologised for messing up and turning up and surprising them. I think that's what I went for. And then they, because what they wanted was they, they, they just wanted to show me who's boss, you know, and Robert Lockwood Jr. should have been a lot bigger than he was. And he turned resentful, you know, when you have people in life who've been given a fairly shitty deal, they don't all turn into sweethearts. You know, some of them just get a bit cynical and bitter. Quite a lot of those guys did, you know, and it's good realisation to see that. So, yeah, I had to kind of, you know, uh, order precedence. I had to sort of stand while he waited, you know, like the monarch in front of me. And then I had to, I mean, then in the end, I found him in Cleveland, Ohio, and I think by then it was the winter and there was about 12 or 14 inches of snow fell overnight. So I had to drive all the way out to Cleveland, Ohio, in, you know, in something like a movie set with a blizzard in front of me. So, you know, hey, maybe they just felt sorry for me in the end, but I got to him. And that's the thing that matters. And of course, now I'm incredibly grateful he did. And and if he was kind of mean and miserable, I don't mind. That's his prerogative. That's fine. That's all part of the kind of life's rich tapestry. I still, I still like him and respect him as a person. He's a great musician. Yeah, and it makes for a great anecdote for your book as well. Um, and, and, and Lockwood had in common something you, you with somebody else that you talked to, Johnny Shines, who had traveled with Robert Johnson. Now, what was it like getting that sort of one step removed to the great man himself, Robert Johnson, the legendary Crossroads blues man? Well, I see, I think that's both true and untrue, you know, because he was a legend and, and there seems to be a certain magic about him. And yet I felt those kind of echoes from a lot of other performers. You know, if I think of people like Blind Willie Johnson, I think there's an incredible mystery to his stuff. It's just that he didn't market his own little story as well as Robert Johnson seems to have. But yes, there was a there's definitely a magic to finding out about that process. And I think Honey Boy Edwards, who also knew Robert, was a phenomenal interview and he talked about you know the devil in music and he, for him the devil was a real person and when you travel around those roads in Clarksdale you know they're pretty rough and nasty and if you imagine what it was like in the 30s and um, quite a few guys told me how if you were just out in the countryside with a guitar you know they just arrest you because you should be there crop in the share you know you should be there working the cotton you shouldn't be distracting people so they'd get arrested and thrown in the county farm and that happened to robert lockwood the hamter honey boy it happened to you know at least half a dozen people that i spoke to at the 60 or so and perhaps quite a few more so there's something very dark about that and and the robert johnson kind of myth is you know taps into that and, I, and there's certainly an element of truth to it I mean, it was Honey Boy. I think I actually asked Honey Boy, do you think he did go to the crossroads? And he said, well, you know, 
I think he probably did go to the crossroads. You know, I don't know if he met a black man there, you know, but and I don't know if he was the devil, but, you know, the devil has given me some of my best tunes. And I'm like, really? Yeah, tell me more. And he, and say how, you know, when he sleeps and the songs come to him, that's the devil, you know, bringing the songs to them, you know. And I think they were in this, uh, you know, quite a lot of people talked about wandering the, you know, the kind of the, wandering the south with uh, you know with the devil present on one hand and the lord present on the other and i think it was very real for them you know yeah and you talk um you also talked to Lowell Folson and and Tommy Ridges about their experiences a few decades later traveling in buses on tour and still being harassed by the police and and you have this nice dichotomy between a story Lowell Folson tells it's very frightening uh, where they've had some kind of mishap on a bridge and the police come and one of the band musicians won't do the yes or no sir thing that the that the white police are requiring and, and the cop actually comes out and says, you know, I can kill you for a nickel. That's how much mm. it's, it cost me. But then you've got this Tommy Ridgely story where it's sort of a twist on that where one of his, his musicians is very frightened by the policeman. The policeman apparently is, I'm just trying to, you know, figure out what happened here. Like, I like that dichotomy and the, the way you caught the complexity of the situation and how it can vary from terrifying to not terrifying. And these musicians had to learn to navigate very much a white man's world. Yeah. I mean, isn't that credible? Cause yes, yeah, so Tommy Ridgely's story, it was one of his friends who turned up a venue and the cops said, you need to go to the, you know, to the entrance at the back. And the guy's going, what do you mean? You know, is that, you know, essentially you're saying, is that the entrance for blacks, but this was new Orleans, you know, which for all its sins was, uh, you know, there were more equal relations between black and white and the cops said no 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 it's just there's a ramp at the back so you can you can roll your gear up the ramp you know you don't have to get go over the steps and you know but Tommy Ridgely was quite open that uh, you know he'd get hassled when they left New Orleans you know in the south you know Mississippi even out in the rest of Louisiana at all you'd get a lot of hassle but yes it, it was never predictable you know so navigating that landscape must is just one little mind-boggling facet as well and uh, and it is important for us to to be open and sometimes they'd say yeah people aren't racist you know you, you've got to when you're interviewing people all of us need to be careful not to try and steer people to kind of confirm your own preconceptions you've just got to ask them hey what happened and and i, I know when actually val wilmer who's also a great interviewer as well as a great photographer, she was on the radio recently and she's just said how uh, she was just taught by somebody just to ask really short questions and then just let them talk and just, just nudge it and not, not really try and ever ask a question that could have a yes or no answer, you know, and, uh, and, and that book was certainly a part of that. And the fact that Tommy Ridgely told me exactly the opposite of what I expected to hear was great. It was all the better. And there's, uh, one of the things you capture in the book is this sort of out of the frying pan into the fire experience. You talk to people uh, like Buddy Guy and Hubert Sumlin who moved from the country to the city. And Hubert Sumlin has some great stories about his confrontations with young bloods in Chicago and pulling a gun on people. And, you know, what, what was that like? And what, what was what was the angle? And what was Hubert's takeaway from that experience? Well, Hubert was quite an unusual guy anyway. He was very, very kind of childlike. You know, you listen to his guitar playing, it's very quirky. 
and he's kind of he had a ludicrously fluffy cat sitting next to him and he would kind of tap me on the on the knee every time he came up with a good anecdote but you know i think for him it was a very um kind of picaresque experience you know leaving the countryside and suddenly being in the city you know and all these pressures it was just crazy for him really so you know and then there was all of that and then there was dealing with wolf who was nice to him sometimes and got him music lessons but then when wolf heard that muddy was trying to hire him for more money you know wolf was kind of just told him to clear off his bandstand and hubert got off there really quickly yeah, that, I mean, the whole thing of Chicago, you know, it was a, it was something of a gangster town. Well, it was a gangster town, you know, it was in those clubs where you'd get a lot of the work. Although the beauty of Chicago then in particular is you did have a big black middle class. And when we look at it now, it, it's different because the, because the, the kind of African-American middle classes have now moved out and live, you know, amongst the white middle classes. But of course, in the, in the 30s, 40s and 50s, the black the African-American middle class lived with everybody else on the South side and the West side, you know, so it, so there was still a very vibrant and kind of could be quite upmarket club scene as well. It was just, you know, it was very multidimensional and the music wasn't just kind of people hearing stuff from Mississippi that reminded them of home. They wanted new stuff that, that was kind of uh, cutting edge and different to what they'd done before. So for people like Huber, it was, mind-blowing kind of pressure cooker and i guess you can hear that because the music's so great yeah and when you talk to uh, i think it was buddy guy that that went into some detail about how the club scene worked at the time in chicago and it's just kind of unfathomable from you know the perspective of 2018 to think about a situation where you could literally work in the clubs 24 7 i mean there were factories coming off shift all through the night into the morning and the bluesman could play and play, play all night, play into the morning. Do you think that that scene, does that still exist anywhere? Was that unique to the, you know, boisterous and thriving industrial American 20th century? Or, you know, is that something that's still going on somewhere? Or is that something that's receded into the past with the economy? Huh. I wish it were still going on. I don't know of anywhere where it's it's going on, you know, because I don't think there are, you know, I just don't think club culture in that way is surviving um, because there are so many alternative sources of entertainment. And for every, you know, kind of great band you'd see in Chicago in the 50s, I'm sure you'd see quite a lot of terrible ones or boring ones or old fashioned ones as well, you know. But yeah, that was an amazing time. And it's, it's a bit like, I guess, you know, the, the 60s and 70s British scene. When you look at clubs and there's, you know, there's about 15 people, uh, you know, about 15 different kind of really good acts all playing in in one week, if not more, you know. And the fact is it was so intense that kind of excellence tends to beget more excellence. You know, you see somebody else, somebody who's really good, you think, oh, yeah, I'll copy that, but I'll add this bit to it. And then, you know, and then you do it. And it's the fact that they were all there crammed in alongside each other, gave the music that intensity and the sheer kind of richness of the different people. And then, you know, all the musicians tended to play with everybody else as well. By the kind of 60s, it's kind of definitely dying off as well, though. So, you know, I mean, I was told more for a mojo piece and for this book, really, that I did just afterwards how... By kind of 63, you know, Muddy wasn't really getting the big 
shows any longer. He was just getting a little bit tired and old. But Wolf was, you know, his hits kind of quite conceivably, you know, you know, by using people like Buddy Guy, he kept going a little bit longer. But he was tailing off even by, you know, 1962, 1963, 1964. And yeah, you know, now that those factories are gone, you know, the stockyards are gone the car factories in Detroit are gone, you know, then you're just not going to have them, those kind of massive people huddled together and looking for a good time, sadly. You know, maybe somewhere else. I'd love to think somewhere else that we don't know about in the globe. And it, it's always possible that somewhere, you know, in Brazil or Indonesia, there's a place like that. But I uh, I don't know of one, sadly. Yeah, I mean, it seems these days people would roll off the shift at the convenience store by themselves and go home and play video games. But... Um... You know, you never know. One thing I thought that you captured that, and you referenced this a little bit earlier, but uh, talking to Jimmy Rogers, who was Muddy Waters' basically right-hand man when he first came to Chicago, and and you, and you captured the the story of how Muddy became amplified, and that Jimmy Rogers basically just took him under his wing and hooked him up with the equipment. Yeah, well, Jimmy, he'd been hanging out with all the guys in Helena, Helena Arkansas, and although people always talk about electric pieces blues has been an urban phenomenon actually it really started at Helena Arkansas when Sonny Boy Williamson the second you know had Robert Lockwood playing electric guitar and they had a, quite a few guys around the place happened to play electric in Robert Lockwood's case in, um, influenced by Charlie Charlie Christian you know and then by then you had T-Bone Walker who was I think playing electric by 36 37 so you had a kind of classic electric blues band really by 1940 so Jimmy Rogers had heard that music and he goes to um, Chicago and gets a D-arm and pickup. You know, they were reasonably easy to find then and um, and hooked him up. And the reason they did it, of course, was because they were playing on Maxwell Street and uh, you'd, people would throw power cables down from the uh, from the upstory windows and you'd crank, you'd, you'd, you know, you'd start your valve amplifier up and, and plug in. And the guys who had electrics were louder than the guys who were playing acoustic or the guys who had stand-up bass, you know, so you could just drown them out and make more money, you know. So I loved the fact that there was this really commercial imperative and this competition there right from the start, you know, and that's that's the kind of um, landscape in which electric music blossomed, you know, just drown out the other guy and get more tips. <laughs> sure. And, and another angle or, you know, thread you bring together is the role of the record companies in all this. And and one thing that I thought you brought out very well in this book was the role of Willie Dixon at Chess Records as sort of an in-house A&R man songwriter. Yeah, you know, you listen to that chess stuff from the time and such a lot of variety. And then at the same time when Willie Dixon went over the road to Cobra Records to record um, people like Otis Rush, you know, how he took his sound and they... They pushed it even further. You know, it was um, it was a great production house, just in the way that Abbey Road was. You know, in the late sixties, there, there were people here who were technically sophisticated and at the top of their game. You know, and, and there's something magical about that. And you know, Willie Dixon would would talk about that, and he thought exactly as a modern producer would do, because he was a modern producer. You know, he'd know if an artist had a slow hit for their last song, they needed a fast. You know, for their last if the last hit was slow, the next one needed to be fast, you know, and, 
I remember he was someone talking exactly about how they used to sit down and try and work out what they were going to do at a session. You know, we need a riff to start off with to catch people's ear, you know, and we need a bit of a story here. And then they'll be working up the, the, the song in the studio. And I think he famously told me for the smokestack lightning riff, you know, he um, he says that Wolf threatened to sack him if he didn't come up with some more memorable riffs because he hadn't done any for a bit, you know. So it was cutthroat and commercial, but it's just like all commercial music was, you know, because I think really it was intrinsically modern music. That, you know, so when people go in the studio, went in the studio then, I don't think it's a heck of a lot different to when they go in the studio now. But, you know, but Willie just had a lot of stuff to draw on. You know, he I mean, he obviously all the songs he had were many of them were taken from old folk songs and kind of rebooted and stuff like that. But they they kept those presses rolling, didn't they? They certainly did. And, and uh, you know, eventually he got a lot of songwriting royalties from via people like Led Zeppelin after some legal uh, settlements on that. And one thing one thing you cover in the book is this transition period that happened in the 60s you talked about muddy and and howlin and how they had kind of faded in the early 60s but one thing that happened is that people white kids like paul butterfield and michael bloomfield came into the clubs and started playing with black bands and and you talked with sam lay who was stolen away from howlin wolf by paul butterfield and and talk about the economics of that why was it so easy for a a young kid like paul butterfield to to lure away howlin wolf's rhythm section well paul butterfield I can't remember if he actually opened the club, but, you know, he had a club on the north side and it's, it's white students, you know, so they're spending more money. So there's more money in those clubs. And um, and, and Butterfield and Bloomfield just took um, Sam Lay and, and Wolf's bassist for their own band, you know, and they, they, they were great. You know, their, their first album, hey, you know, is it, 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 you know, it comes from a completely unique place and Sam Lay enjoyed it. You know, he, um, he just got treated better than he did because he was a bit, you know, more unusual, you know, yeah, kind of more of a novelty factor. And he, and he gave those guys a cred that they needed because they were trying to kind of match up the English bands as well, who were probably a year ahead of them as well. So, but it said that um, Wolf was really annoyed that you know, those white guys had t- taken his band away from him. But you know, hey, that's competition. That's show business, isn't it? You know, you need you need those rivalries. And then, of course, you know, I love the fact that, that then that Sam Lay went on to play with Dylan. And Sam Lay told me stories. I, I don't think they're in the book of how Dylan turned up to see him when he was working security, and nobody who we worked with had any idea who this guy was. You know, so just a great little crossing of the paths and and sam lay who also of course hosted iggy pop when iggy pop or or, or jimmy osterberg as he was when he first moved to chicago he he slept on sam lay's floor for a couple of days you know so it was all it was all happening <laughs> you know what can he say and uh, and even sam lay alone just as a drummer his his life is an amazing journey too so it was terrific to just spend time with those guys really was and and this book, I, I think you've got kind of a unique perspective as a Brit and somebody who's gotten to interview people like John Mayall and Keith Richards. How do you compare? I mean, I think at the time there was sort of a feeling that the Bloomfield, Butterfield and Rykuter type of white boy American blues was a little more authentic than the British blues because they had actually learned at the feet of these blues men and played with these blues men, whereas people like Keith Richards or Brian Jones could only, uh, you know, play off the record other than the you know when bill big bill brunzi or somebody came to town 
who, how do you think? What? Do you think that that distinction still holds up, or do you think that the Brits kind of hold their own in the long run? Well, you've got to work with what you've got, but you know, and Butterfield and Bloomfield were going to spread that story, weren't they? And the Stones didn't learn at the feet of those guys. But remember all those guys, you know, or even people like Sister Rosetta Tharp in the 60s, where would they get good work, you know, high-paying work? They'd get it in Europe, you know. So Muddy came over to Britain, I think, in 1956 and 1960, you know. So, um, you know, it, it's complex, but I, but I think unequivocally that the British role was an important one and it just wouldn't have worked in that kind of way. I mean, Ry Kuda studied at people's feet later, you know, not, not really at that time. He was out on, on the West coast, you know, he didn't really hang out with, with many of those guys. So, and, and, the, and what is authenticity when you're taking a, a transplanted music anyway, you know, for me, what's, I mean, I think I'd say I prefer the inauthentic blues. I like, the Stones playing Route 66, you know, or doing a kind of snarling, punky, snotty teenage version of that music rather than doing, you know, an authentic replica, which is why people like John Mayall, you know, don't really do a lot for me because why do I need people copying Freddie King or Otis Rust songs when you've got the originals? You know, it's fair enough. It was a necessary kind of um, halfway house. And I know from speaking to a lot of those guys in, on that scene then, um, like Dan Erlewine, who played in um, a blues band then, he, sort of, he said how important what they did was at the time, because it opened people's ears to the, to the real thing. And then in retrospect, it wasn't that really important, because their music wasn't as good as the originals. And I guess, really, that's kind of how I feel, too. I like the, the Butterfield and Bluefield stuff, but it's once they start getting psychedelic that it's interesting for me. Yeah, I, I, I have to agree. And I think... Another thing that you capture in the book is the role of those players and the Rolling Stones. You know, Sam Lay talks about Howlin' Wolf's famous appearance on Shindig, which, you know, Brian Jones and the Stones made happen. And, and I think in your Brian Jones biography, you call that Brian's biggest contribution to culture. And then it talks, you know, also a little later on, people like Bloomfield go to San Francisco and bring the bluesmen with them. And people like Muddy Waters uh, start getting gigs at the Fillmore and, and, other arenas and and kind of keep these bluesmen going with a white audience, a much bigger audience than they had before. Talk about that a little bit. Like, what is the long-term impact of that? Well, I think for those guys, it gave them, you know, late in life, not, not so much dignity, because why should playing for white audience be intrinsically superior to playing for black audiences? But just anybody will appreciate playing to a new crowd and actually get paid properly, you know. And when it comes down to it, it needs pointing out that people like Muddy and Wolf did get decent record royalties from chess. You know, they didn't sign away their publishing. You know what? They probably got a better deal than English bands did in 62, 63 or 64. So, um, I mean, I know Buddy Guy gets his songwriting royalties and I doubt that Ray Davis gets much from the early kinks so they got a pretty good deal they had pretty good management i think they loved being with those audiences and i know i don't think it's actually mentioned in the iggy book but you know um people like muddy waters they shared stages with psychedelic bands they they shared stages with the, the stooges you know muddy watched the stooges from the side of the set and 
And according to Cub Coda, he saw it. He said after, you know, the, the, the set had petered to a finish with Iggy rolling in broken glass, Muddy says those guys need to get themselves an act. <laughs> 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 and, then, and then Cub Coda says, uh, no, no, Muddy, that is the act. But, yeah, I mean, I think it's a magnificent time that you can have second acts, you know, in, in lives. And I think there's something magical about that, too. And, um, you know, maybe Iggy had to wait to get a second act, but those guys certainly did. And um, and they made it through. Um, you know, they were conscious of their kind of ranking, of their dignity. And I think they just unequivocally appreciated it. And if the audiences were different, you know, they'd always had different audiences you know you played in the south uh you know or you played in the north the audiences would be completely different and you know all that black music did have a tradition of also playing to white patrons it's just for those blues guys it came later so you know it wasn't it wasn't a completely strange concept at all that it, it should happen you know i think it was just it happened to other people and it's great that it happened to them and it's lovely they were just there with people who cared for them and and revered them and um you know as many people said i think it was dave myers the first electric bassist i think it was he who said you know when they first went to europe to play for white audiences he said i thought i died and gone to heaven and and as part of this, you know, historical piece, you capture kind of the ebbs and flows of of history and the popularity because right after this blues boom, a certain wave of of performers, some of them like Muddy Waters, kind of were not quite set for life, but at least could get gigs and and their profile was raised really high. But there was a next wave of performers like Otis Rush, who were kind of caught, uh, you know, like Flotsam and Jetsam dragged out with the mud when the tide receded, and and you talk about. Otis getting this deal with Capitol Records, who then refused to put out a record. Well, what, what was the story with that? Well, that's a sad story. And of course, Otis you know, died just a couple of weeks back. And he's somebody I've thought about a lot over the years, actually. And um, but Otis was a difficult person when he he actually talked about um, um, uh, you know, he talked about recording with Bloomfield, and he was very re resentful of sort of Bloomfield um, bossing him around, and um, he didn't, you know, he wasn't really a glass half full person. So maybe was he bitter and difficult because those things had happened to him, or did those things happen to him because he was a difficult person? You know, he, um, he, you know, he, I think he suffered from depression as well. But it was, it was a tough life. For a lot of them. And it was strange for me, you know, even Buddy Guy in 1987, I think, when I would have interview, interviewed him, he played the Town and Country Club. And that was a pretty big venue. They probably had 800, you know, 1,100 people. And he was playing with Junior Wells, so the two of them together. Can you imagine how phenomenal that was? And Junior Wells had this kind of mohair suit that was so crisply pressed it looked like it was crafted out of sheet steel honestly it was amazing and um but he was staying in this tiny hotel where there really wasn't room for both his guitar case and and his bed you know so he they were all kind of cr you know, so i was interviewing him sitting on the bed and there was just wasn't room to spring the proverbial cat you know so he still had a bit of an audience and again, Jimmy Rogers was playing at 100 Club and still was playing to maybe 200 people, you know. So, but even that was better than nothing. I mean, those guys then were in the 60s 
and their 70s. And uh, I think they'd seen hard times before, but it was tough for people. You know, a lot of people I went and tracked down in the South, they kind of weren't really playing music any longer. And so there's this thing of quite a few of the guys, I just they just asked me for money. So I gave them money because they needed it, you know. And uh, some of them might make it onto this little kind of folky blues circuit. And a lot of them wouldn't, you know. And that is seems terribly unfair you know people like yank rachel who was a real pioneer of just was living in uh indiana and um you know in kind of not poverty but he wasn't you know he certainly wasn't in the lap of luxury but you know i think he was at least he'd done something in his life you know and i think they they'd all all those guys had had to adopt a philosophy to help them survive. And there were many different ones, you know, I know Jimmy Rogers told me about his philosophy and I think it's there in the, in the book about, you know, it's pretty much the, Oh, the Kipling thing about, you know, treating success and failure in much the same way. Don't get too excited. Don't get too downhearted. It's all the same thing. And that's how he survived. And I respected that a lot. And, you know, it's weird for me as a guy in my twenties and thirties to be speaking to all these guys in the sixties and seventies, and you know what? They seemed younger than most people my age. They were young people because they were still experiencing life and they were still open. And that was a kind of weird lesson to me, you know, like 20 or 30 or however many years later. You know, it's a kind of a good lesson for all of us. But now, of course, it's a poignant lesson because I realised I was there in this kind of last flowering of those people playing and they're not around any longer, you know? So Val and I did talk a few weeks back and we said, yeah, we need to spend a bit of time getting this book out again. Cause I think as a document, it's, it's the most anybody's going to get. I mean, there are other obviously great books on blues. People like Paul Oliver were there well before I was and did amazing interviews, but you don't really hear people talking in their own words in the way that these guys are. So I count myself as, you know, really, incredibly blessed to have just done it but of course it's partly because nobody else would do it because it's so much hassle you know but i uh, i'm glad i did it i'm so glad well thank you for putting in the work and like in the 20 or so years since the book came out what do you think of the developments in blues since then i mean uh, kind of in the closing chapter of the book you you look at robert cray who was probably the flag the standard bearer for African-American blues at that point. But now you've got people like Guy Clark Jr. And and also you've got people, bands like the White Stripes that have emerged and gone and Amy White, Winehouse, these white musicians who are very influenced by the blues and in a, in a you know, sort of nouveau retro way. I mean, you've got Jack White playing a diddly bow and, and the beginning of, of that documentary, it might get loud. I mean, what do you think of these developments since then? Well, I- People like Amy Winehouse and Jack White, I just love the music anyway, you know. Um, I'm probably less likely to to like music that's overtly copying or taking the blues because it's really hard to do well, you know. But I, I think somebody like Jack White did it in a shameless way, <laughs> and I think that's kind of vital. And and not just that, the White Stripes were a really, really good live band as well. And and different peoples have ripped off bits in different ways. I mean, obviously, people like Becker were ripping off that kind of music as well and doing it in a different way. So, you know, to be honest, it's when people are trying to do something new with it that I find it exciting. And I'm, you know, the last thing, can you can imagine having written a, a book like that and the number of people who were in, you know, blues bands, bar bands who can play really well, you know, will tell me, um, 
yeah, you listen to this record. And it's like, yeah, great. You play this music like those guys did 50 years and you get it. You know, there are so many, you know, it's so much faster. Isn't that great? And you, there aren't very many bum notes. But, you know, for me, why do we need any of that? But um, I found it actually thrilling in, in a way, seeing people like the White Stripes just giving, delivering that straight to people. And, and some of them had uh, knew where it came from and some of it, some of them didn't. And it didn't really matter. But, I mean, I guess the White Stripes weren't authentic, were they? And so I'm always enjoy people who don't pretend to be authentic you know rather than ones who are doing this amazing recreation with with period instruments or people like c6 steve who you know what a shock that was when he turned out to be you know a sort of middle class session musician i didn't see that one coming whoa (laughs) and uh (laughs) you know so it's that kind of stuff uh, like c6 steve that i detested right from the beginning because hey you know that is kind of I don't believe in cultural appropriation, but if anything is, sort of pretend to be a down-home guy is, you know, is cultural appropriation because it's patronising. But if you just take that music and you say, listen, this is, this is this show business and I'm ripping this stuff off like musicians have done for the last, I don't know, thousand years, then that's fine. And if people can take something from it, especially that kind of tonality, which still sounds fresh today, you know, the the, the kind of, distortion the the kind of simplicity of it all you know i think it still has it's great that you know this it still that music still has something to give and um you know it is good if people go back and find the original stuff and you know you'll you'll even things like breaking bad you'll hear songs like that and they still sound thrilling and the stuff you you haven't heard before so it's it's sad that this music has turned into a kind of you know historic genre but i guess that kind of happens with everything doesn't it sooner or later yeah and with you know in our era of the celestial jukebox and everything being online i sometimes wonder if the 21st century isn't going to be a lot of sort of sifting through the rubble of what we recorded in the 20th century and finding new ways to mix and match it and appropriate it but you know time will tell on that and so thanks very much paul for coming on the show again always great to have you and the book is portrait of the blues by paul trinka with val wilmer and a forward by john lee hooker one last question What's the last great blues record you listened to? Oh, goodness. Um, you know, I can't really um, think of one on off the top of my head. I mean, you know, um, I mean, Buddy Guy put out an album with a song called Feels Like Rain on it. And I mean, that was the late 90s. And that was a fabulous album, kind of as good as more or less anything he'd, he'd done before. And then... You know, a lot of those guys were making great music up until the 90s. And, uh, you know, Buddy Guy's last album, you know, wasn't as thrilling for me. It was a bit more like, you know, a bit more predictable and safe. Um, Two songs on that last Stones album, you know, were were great when they covered the Jimmy Reed song. But... uh, yeah, I'm not sure otherwise. I, I I don't, it's not that kind of, you know, for me that music played its part and then I don't really listen out for great blues albums because to me, people like Hendrix would do great blues albums, you know, so by 1970, that's where the music had gone. Or, or you listen to people like Prince, you know, in some ways was a great blues musician. I was lucky to see him in a, tiny club in camden and that was blues music you know it's just not kind of 
purest blues because the music's just kept moving on. And so I don't see, you know, I just rather hear something like the White Stripes as I would some sort of authentic blues stuff. But, you know, that there has been good people, but it's not really where I listen for my music now, if I'm honest. I, uh, but, you know, I live in hope. <laughs> yeah, I was actually asking you, like, what the la- most recent old blues, like if you'd popped in a Robert Johnson or a John Lee Hooker or B.B. King or something. I was listening to John Lee Hooker's modern recordings uh, yesterday from the 40s. Uh, Boogie Chillin', you know, from 1949 or whatever, still just explodes out of the sound system. And and so that that's kind of what I was getting at. But well, there's a Stones um, kind of Stones curated blues album just came out, and it was a little bit disappointing because um, you know there were a lot of the usual suspects, but they had an original of a song they covered by Jimmy Reed, Jimmy Reed called "Little Rain." You, know, you listen to that; it's just wild. How could people come out with stuff like that? It still sounds wild even now. And then you know, just the other day, I was playing Otis's Rush "All Your Love," which is just a crazy song with Ike Turner playing guitar opposite him as well, you know, and it's so on the edge and distorted. If somebody could tap into that and have a record, you know, that intense with sounds just as kind of cranked up as that and do it in an unstudied way as if they discovered it, you know, people would still lap it up even now because it is thrilling, really thrilling music even then. When people do get close to that, you know, people do pick up on it, but you've... But it's coming at it without being too studied and being a kind of revisionist. That's a problem, isn't it? You know. But there, there's still a lot of, of great stuff out there, and um, yeah, and, and you know, there's still things I hear or tracks of people remind me of that I've forgotten about, even now. So I'll probably go and try and find a few tonight. <laughs> well, cool. Enjoy, and thanks again for being on the show. This is the Let It Roll podcast with Nate Wilcox and our guest Paul Trinka. Thanks for listening. Next week, Nate will be back with special guest Joe Nick Potosky for a discussion on his biography of Willie Nelson. Be sure and subscribe to the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Podomatic, and check out our website at letitrollpodcast.com. Portrait of the Blues by Paul Trinka, featuring the photography of Val Wilmer, is out of print but easily obtained online at Amazon.com, eBay, and from many other fine vendors. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett.
Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 